welcome you all back. Seeing some more faces here again. You can see Dale here. And uh, this has been a, a good morning and uh, thought-provoking. And I trust what I have to say here is just uh, fits in with what Val was leading our thoughts. I've been kind of amazed at how um, what I well, what I've been thinking is dovetailing what Val has been saying. But I was his student. What do you expect? <laughs> Prestige, position, and popularity. I was asked to teach the youth and life class at Calvary Bible School last winter. So as I was selecting class subjects, I uh, thought that uh, the issue of jealousy is one that I knew I'd deal with and have dealt with in my own heart. And so I developed a class on jealousy. And... Um, and the students latched on to that pretty good. And I shared it early on in the, the term. The feedback I got was, thank you for that. Help me with my term because I certainly um, saw people that had it and I didn't have it. It's kind of feedback I got. So as I was ruminating over this, I thought that I, I had uh, spoken to those who were the have-nots and wish they had. But what about those who are the haves? They've got it. I, I need to talk to them. So I began working on this subject. And uh, it's been good for me, my own journey here. And so I think it's a, as I listened to Val teaching this morning, it seems to me this is an aspect of idolatry. I'll try to hone in on this one. And, uh, uh, hopefully help myself through this again. So, key passage I'd like to look at here. Mark 9, beginning in verse 33. And he came to Capernaum, and being in the house, he asked them, What was it that ye disputed among yourselves by the way? But they held their peace. For by the way, they had disputed among themselves who would be the greatest? And he sat down and called the twelve and said to them, If any man desire to be first, the same shall be last of all and servant of all. And he took a child and set him in the midst of them. And when he had taken him in his arms, he said unto them, Whosoever shall receive one such children in my name receiveth me. And whosoever shall receive me receiveth not me, but him that sent me. So, Val just used the illustration or we were talking about on well, the subject matter was sports, about well, professional sports. And um, the Apostle Paul used professional sports as an ex- or professional. He used sports as an example of running a race and how the athlete trains in running the race. So I'd like to use that, also use that as an example in my following illustration. In professional sports, those few highly honed skills, or those with few, those few with highly honed skills, have but a few moments to deliver the blow that will defeat the opposition. These moments are extremely critical 
and tense. Because these talented players use their skill to impress their admirers who have paid a handsome fortune to watch them perform. If they fail to deliver at these critical moments, those worshippers, idolaters, in the stands will be highly disappointed. And so will the team owners. Therefore, their bargaining at the table for millions of dollars will not hold. The pressure to deliver for the following, the rise and fall of popularity is everything in those few brief moments. For soon, in a few brief years, these players will lose their strength to age and they will no longer be household names in their various regions. And others will come and take their places. Similarly, we sitting here today are not much different as we pass through the stage of our lives. We also find ourselves needing to deliver to a watching audience. If we fail to meet the expectations of our admirers, we lose the popularity and prestige we secretly desire. And we feel our position shifting. We, we may lose our strength to age and the younger will rise and take our place. I adapted this illustration from a, a message from Ravi Zacharias. He used an illustration similar to this. I adapted it. But it's Solomon, who we've been using, and I'll use him some more today. As he ruminated over this dilemma of one generation performing on the stage and another generation coming along. What profit hath the man in all his labor that he taketh under the sun? One generation passes away and another generation taketh its place, but the earth abideth forever. But we're just... What use is all this energy? And we... The futility of it all. So, this particular idol. What is it that we so inherently chase? Is it acceptance, affirmation, love, belonging, worth? Is that what it is? Or is it something that can be bigger? Is it popularity, prestige, and position? Some other words would include greatness, 
recognition, esteem, fame, success, or power. The world defines greatness in terms of power, possessions, prestige, and position. So if you can demand service from others, you've arrived. And we live in a self-serving culture, a me-first culture. Make America great again. I appreciate Bear's thoughts. What about the others? What about everybody else? We make America great again. No, acting like a servant is not a popular concept. Unless being a servant gets you status and gets you recognition. Okay, now, it's useful. Public servants. I wonder, I just had to wonder, where, where does this incessant urge come from? And I'm not sure that I can fully describe it. I have a few attempts. Where does this incessant urge come from? Perhaps it's from that deep inner desire that we all have for meaning. We like a deeper level of meaning, and so we chase it. And perhaps we look, we think we can get it here. Maybe that's where I get it. So why is it in our humanness that we so desperately, in our humanness, crave popularity? Why is jealousy over the success of another a painful reality? Painful reality? Because there really is no joy in jealousy. It's the envy is the rottenness of the bones. Now has God created us this way? Why the competition for the upper hand? And again I say I enjoyed last night. I enjoyed winning. Thank you, Judy. You put it right. You know, but we're still in the flesh. There, you know, was it? You know, how much of it was going on? Or perhaps, let's see here. Or perhaps it was. It was here. Maybe it was here. In Isaiah 14, verse 12, How thou art fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning! How art thou cut down to the ground, which didst weaken the nations? For thou hast said in thine heart, I will ascend into heaven, I will exalt my throne above the stars of God, I will sit upon the mount of the congregation on the sides of the north, I will ascend above the heights of the clouds, I will be like the most high. Yet thou shalt be brought down to hell, to the sides of the pit. Did we get it from Satan? Or did we get it from here? For no man ever yet hated his own flesh, but nourisheth and cherisheth it, even as the Lord of the church. We love ourselves. And we love to make ourselves comfortable. And we tend to make ourselves comfortable sometimes at the expense of others. So we naturally, humanly tend to love ourselves more than our neighbor. And he answering said, Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy soul, with all thy strength, and with all thy mind, and thy neighbor 
as thyself. So, it's not that loving ourselves is entirely wrong. Because we are to love our neighbors as we love ourselves. The problem is that we love ourselves too much. And Jesus said in numerous places to love our neighbors as ourselves. Just don't love your neighbor less than you love yourself. For you really do love yourself. So seek to, uh, so much so that we advance ourselves beyond our neighbors. We should seek to make our neighbor as comfortable as you make yourself comfortable. Don't use your neighbor to make yourself greater. Serve your neighbors. Love them more. And that's how we overcome the fear of man. Is we love God and we love our neighbors so we serve them. Loving God is first. Loving neighbor is second. And we just naturally love ourselves. We really don't have to concentrate on that very much. Not much. Just natural. To take care of ourselves. To nourish and cherish me. When I get hungry, I go looking for food. Naturally. So, but this is where the discussion of the disciples was. Who has the most recognition? Who? They were discussing among themselves who is the most advanced. Who does Jesus think the most of? And that's just kind of common with young people. Just I was young too, and I'm still young. Who is treasured the most? Who is talked of the most often? Whose name gets mentioned the most often among us? Hmm. John says, could be me. Peter, uh, I think it's me. Can you imagine how the picture might have looked? Well, Jesus asked me to do this, but I'm generally the one who carries this. I don't know. We can let our imaginations go, and some of you would be better at it than me how this discussion might have looked. We just know that that Jesus called it a dispute. What was it that you disputed among yourselves, by the way? That they had the child's me first mentality. And what I find interesting was that they 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 didn't want to say what they were discussing. They didn't want to repeat because it's embarrassing to rehearse how I've bragged. Just doesn't sound very good to repeat my own bragging words. And um, you know, I just can't forget it, Mom and Dad. How that one time after church, I was a little fellow, and I think I was little. I don't know, but I was doing something in the yard that was gaining attention and I just remember dad saying later on he said Berlin you were showing off and it was my first recognition that I could actually do something like that <laughs> I was able to show off and I wondered 
what does that really mean? Well, I was learning what showing off was. I appreciate that admonition. I'm the biggest, I'm the best, I'm the greatest. Bragging does not sound very pretty, repeated. But at the time, it seemed so appropriate. It's just the natural flow of conversation that I would express the things that are... So please don't ask me to repeat my things that I've bragged about. Um, but you know, this was not the only time the disciples had this issue of greatness. Um, it, it happened time and again. Luke 9.46 And there arose a reasoning among them, among them which of them should be the greatest... And Jesus perceived the thought of their heart and took a child and set it by him. 22-24 And there also was a strife among them which of them should be accounted the greatest. And Jesus again tried to teach him a lesson in verse 26. But ye, but, shall not, but ye shall not be so, but he that is greatest among you let him be as the younger, and he that is chief as he that doth serve. And Mark 10, 35, And James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came unto him, saying, Master, we would that thou wouldest do for us whatsoever we desire. You remember what that was? We want the choice seats. And all the rest of them said, Oh, me too. And who are you? Do you actually think that were any different than what they were. This desire for popularity, prestige, and position. You know what? It actually happened once. It actually happened once. That it actually happened once that someone was given the privilege of obtaining Popularity, prestige, and position without much work. Like, you have any idea who that was? I'm going to go back to this <laughs> poor Solomon again and use him as our illustration. Yeah, King Solomon was given a choice by God. God told King Solomon to ask whatever he wanted, and God would provide it. Whatever you want. It's as though God gave Solomon a signed blank check for him to purchase, in a sense, whatever he wanted. So he's asked for wisdom. And God gave him wisdom to be the wisest man that ever lived. But wisdom was the only beginning. In Solomon's lifetime, he would accumulate greater riches than anyone ever imagined. I like how Val talked about all those horses. Stalls. And he was sought out by royalty. His popularity and reputation spread through the whole world. And his kingship was at a time of great security and peace. And it all started with this wisdom. So Solomon came to the throne, I, I think, with a cloud hanging over him. He came to the throne with a cloud hanging over him. And what I mean by this is that he was the son of Bathsheba. He was the result of an affair. 
that's baggage. God had told David that the sword would never depart from your house. That's baggage. And he was not the rightful heir to the throne. I believe it was Adonijah. But it was through Bathsheba and Nathan and God's permission that it happened. So I think there was an insecurity hanging over over him that I'm not sure that he ever overcame. And insecurity will make us do strange and unconfident things. Being insecure is not free. We have something to protect. So here's the wisest man who was granted all this privilege. Blank check. Got it all. All this power, this prestige, popularity, position, and being a gifted man. But Solomon is an illustration of a gifted man who was a have. He had it with untamed passions. Untamed passions. Solomon was very talented and brilliant. Very successful at what he did. In other words, he was smart and intelligent. And he he authored thousands of proverbs, those wise sayings. And he, he knew what happens when an individual makes foolish choices and the results. Proverbs is full of that. You do this and you get this. The fool does this and he gets this. He had the answers. For example, can a man take fire in his bosom and his clothes not be burned? You can't do that, Solomon's saying. Take fire in your bosom and your clothes not be burned. Yet Solomon had many wives and concubines kept adding and adding and adding and adding. How can this be? How can this be? That he would keep on adding wives and concubines. You know, but just think about it. There's so many gifted men that give way to their passions. They rise in position and they lead a double lifestyle. And all of a sudden, boom, the covers are blown off. You find out what they've been doing. Underneath. Give way to their desires. Stolen waters are sweet. See, didn't Solomon know that with every woman that he took, there was a moral obligation? You don't just take a wife and then not be responsible for your action. And as you read Ecclesiastes, and as he ruminates over this, I'm trying to think of the verse. Be content with the wife of your youth. Rejoice with the wife of your youth. It's as though it's as though he was thinking back to the first one. And he wished he could be back with her again. I've got a book and I wish I brought it with me. I've got it here. Um, Lester Bauman's book. Um, now you forget the name. Where is God? Yeah, where is God? It's a book on Ecclesiastes. 
He does a great job of helping us open up and understand what's laid behind Ecclesiastes. I read it just in my devotional period. Just read it through it slowly. And uh, he got, he's got one section in there about an imaginary incident where Simon, Solomon's sitting by the fireplace and he thinks back to, back to his first wife, Nema. He made up the name. I wonder if she'd be interested in sitting with me for just one evening. So he sends the servant girl out to find her. The servant girl comes back, stands in the doorway, and he says, What's up? She doesn't want to come. You haven't paid it. She said, you haven't paid attention to me for 20 years. I don't want you. Solomon just grieves. Maybe that's how it happened. We don't know. But I, so, but for Solomon, wisdom came easy for him. Proverbs came very easy for him. Speaking was easy for him. So, and he didn't get it. And why couldn't he? I said, why couldn't he see this? But you know, that's a, real, a lesson for all of us. We need people who will be able to. The bottom line is this: we need a friend, someone who can tell us when we're off. We need to give others a platform to speak into our lives. And my question is this. Is, is this um, who could tell the king anything? I'm just suggesting that maybe Solomon wouldn't listen to anyone. He'd never given anyone platform to speak into his life. And I don't think he had a prophet to speak into his life. But I don't think we've got a record of any prophet that came to him and say, said, Thou art the man, like David did. It didn't happen. I'm wondering, did he never give a platform? And that speaks to me. Did he? Appreciate that, Bear. We'll have to. I'll have to look at dig into that. Did he listen? Appreciate that. I'll have to look at that. Ahijah. Ahijah. Okay. But that was, and that was later on. Later on too. Let's dialogue some more about that. I'd like to even see those scriptures. I want to hear. I want to hear it. Because seemingly he didn't. If they talked to him, he didn't listen. Um, maybe they were talking out of turn, and he didn't give him a platform to speak. I'm not sure. But what I'm what I'm saying is that I need a person. I need someone who will speak into my life, and I give them permission to speak into my life. I'm not out there on my own. I need others, and. Um, and that's part of what comes with, you know, if, if if you're entrusted with a position, you never use that position as a place where people can't speak into your life. Another observation is that 
The very smart do not have to work very hard. Therefore, they do not need to learn discipline. Now, that doesn't mean they can't learn discipline. They can learn discipline. But it's just that many smart and intelligent people, it's easy to get good grades. They don't have to work very hard for them. Therefore, they don't need to learn the hard discipline of study. Now, I'll hasten to say that there are intelligent people who, who do work very hard and make use of their talents and their giftedness. They do. But often the default is the easiest path. It's that way for me. Not very long ago. I want to share this carefully. I want to, I want to keep confidential what's been shared with me in confidence, but you won't know and I won't be able, be able to reveal any identities. I can't or I won't. Um, but a young man shared with me about his life. And he said, as we sat together, he said, I'm very smart. And he wasn't bragging. Just stating a fact. That he graduated early. He said, I didn't have to study to pass my tests. I just took them, got straight A's. He had a memory that could just... Stuck. And because of his intelligence, he gained a lot of popularity. And his name is known. He doesn't really like it, but his name is known. But with tears running down his face... He told me the sad tale of his undisciplined life. His personal failures, his depression, his loss. And he said, I'm only now beginning to learn the art of self-discipline. Part of that was just getting up in the morning, getting out of bed. I'd like to draw your attention to another man, though, who was a gifted man. And he did learn the art of self-discipline, even though he was very gifted. That man was Joseph. And he learned self-discipline, even though he was very gifted. The story of Joseph is a saga of a man who went from a pit to a palace, from rags to riches. He was a man whom God entrusted with remarkable ability. Not just ability, but physical attractiveness. And this is another issue. Physical, how we look is given to us by God. But you know, we use it to our advantage. Certain people do. Joseph is one of the few men in the Bible who is noted for the beauty of his appearance. As you're calmly reading your morning devotions, and you come across Genesis chapter 39, verse 6, and you read this, and Joseph was a goodly man and well-favored. Now maybe you're reading another translation where it says, and Joseph was a handsome and attractive in a form and appearance. You get a picture of a good-looking young man. He was physically attractive through and through. But however, his physical attractiveness became a snare. Now there's noticed Potiphar's wife noticed. But he was able to resist the temptation that comes along with physical attractiveness. 
He didn't use it. Like the temptation would be to flaunt it. He also found unrivaled advancement. You think about it, going from the prison to being next to Pharaoh, wouldn't that be something to go to your head about? He made ruler over the land of Egypt. The king gives Joseph his signet ring, which became, which marked legal authority. He was given linen garments only to be worn by nobility. He wore Pharaoh's ring upon his hand. He was, he was 30 years old and had risen to the highest position in the land. The test was to see if Joseph could resist the temptations that came with this new power. Prestige, popularity, and position. But you know, Joseph passed the test of abandonment and allurement. However, now he faced the greatest test of all, advancement. Because you see, advancement, prestige and popularity, prominence makes the man often forget God. We sin, we're tempted to sin more in times of prosperity than adversity. Oftentimes, the more blessed the man is with physical things, he tends to forget the importance of spiritual things. That's why it's hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom. Joseph passed the test and remained a disciplined man. He was able to bridle his passions. He remained a servant, useful for the purposes that God had for him. Here's a few conclusions about giftedness. So gifted people will need to make special effort to learn to discipline themselves and their passions. Gifted people need to take special effort to learn discipline and to bridle their passions. The not-so-gifted people will also need to discipline themselves. However, there is an extra incentive because they must learn the discipline of study if they are to get passing grades. So they kind of got that extra incentive. So I guess I'll just thank the Lord for the, the D I got in Val's class. This is probably about the best class I had. But I had to work hard. These tests were tough. And there are, there also are not very gifted people sometimes who don't, who just kind of clock out. Don't try. Well, dare I quote even Solomon now? Here it is. He's got truth to say. As the finding pot for silver and the furnace for gold, so is a man to his praise. In times of advancement, we are in and praise and you are in a crucible. You're being tested. Tested. How will you come out? How will you respond? Oh, here's a good example from a humble, gifted man. During the American Revolution, a man in civilian clothes rode past a group of soldiers preparing a small defensive barrier. Their leader was shouting instructions, but making no attempt to help them. Asked why by the rider, he retorted with great dignity, Sir, I am the corporal. 
And the stranger apologized and dismounted and proceeded to help the exhausted soldiers get the job done. And, he, and then when the job was complete, he turned to the corporal and said, Corporal, the next time you have a job like this and not enough men to do it, go to your commander-in-chief and I will come and help you again. And with that, George Washington got back on his horse and rode off. May that be us as humble servants. The way up is down. I'd like to take you to Luke chapter 14, verses 7 to 11. This is uh, Jesus' parable where he's teaching a great lesson about humility, really about repentance. Beginning of verse 7. And he put forth a parable to those who were bidden. And when he marked how they chose out the chief rooms, saying unto them, When thou art bidden, have any man to a wedding, sit not down in the highest place, or highest room, lest there a more honorable man than thou be bidden of him. And he bade thee, and he, he that bade thee, and him come, say to thee, Give this man place, and thou begin with shame to take the lowest room. But when thou art bidden, go and sit down in the lowest room. And when he that bade thee cometh, may he say to thee, Friend, go up higher. Then shalt thou have worship in the presence of them that sit at meat with thee. For whosoever shall exalt himself shall be abased, and he that humbleth himself shall be exalted. For whosoever exalteth himself shall be abased, and he that humbleth himself shall be exalted. You can be sure of that. You can be sure of that. Because Jesus said it. Now you see this played out all the time in world politics. Politicians exalt themselves all the time. And I see other people doing it. But it's kind of hard to see me doing it. And this man in this story didn't see himself doing it. So we can choose to humble ourselves or not to humble ourselves. But repentance is the way to humble ourselves. Now, Manasseh was a king who was determined to be the most wicked of kings. And when he was in the day of distress in the Babylonian prison, he humbled himself. If Manasseh can humble himself, I can humble myself. That kind of king. If he can do it, I can do it. By God's help. And he was in affliction, and, and he besought the Lord his God and humbled himself greatly before the God of his fathers. It's just unfortunate that his son didn't follow his ways at all. But we'll leave that. <clears throat> so, I'm prefacing this illustration here. We're going to get back to the parable in a moment. Repentance is saying to God that you are right and I am wrong. When we say this to people who point out our faults, we agree 
And this, this then is a humbling experience. It's so hard on my pride to agree with someone who says I am wrong. But just as surely as you, when you humble yourself, you will be exalted. But you need to stay humble. For thus saith the high and lofty one that hath eternity, whose name is holy, I dwell in the high and holy place with him also that is of a contrite and humble spirit. To revive the spirit of the humble and to revive the heart of the contrite ones. So the high and holy one is saying, this is where I dwell in high places. But I also bring with me the contrite ones who are able to go along. Again, the high and holy is calling us to himself. He's not some austere God out there that we just marvel at. No, he draws us in. All right, so now listen to what happens to in the storyline of the parable that we just read. But Jesus did humble himself, identified with our sins, went to the cross, and we learn from his example. It operated in Jesus, and it can operate in us. All right, now, the storyline of the parable. I enjoy this storyline. We've got a wedding feast. And there's a big table. And there's table after table. After table. Loaded with good things. I'm picturing that last wedding we were at here back home. We had a wedding. Bridal table set up front. Loads of other tables. But all the guests have not yet arrived. It's empty. They're not here yet. But here he comes. He comes to the door. It's Brother Hopeful. He's been invited. And he comes to the door. But he needs to decide where he's going to sit. And um, I hope you all can understand this, parable because we don't do this in here. Dawson, I hope you're doing great. You know, he's sitting on the front two benches here. We should just, obviously, we should just take these benches out and work better in here. But you're fine where you're sitting, okay? But Brother Hopeful has got, he, he's into where he can get front stage. He wants to be, yeah, he wants to be popular. He wants to gain recognition. He wants to be prominent. He wants popularity, position, and prestige. Um, and this is the general direction of humanity. We want to be number one. Um, you know, and I wish conversion would just take away all this desire. And we just all be just at the right amount of this. I would have to say, though, that that the sphere of Christian service is a place that is plagued with self-seeking. We don't say it, but I attend our our constituencies ministers meetings. And you always kind of want to know who's speaking. Um. Who's going to speak to a crowd of 500? Who are the ones that get the position? Yeah, there's rivalry among ministers, unfortunately. There's rivalry among Christian brothers and sisters. Where's that seat? (laughs) Where can I, I get that seat? 
I'd like to have that one. Well, they got it. So sitting down in the highest place gets to be standard procedure, unless we're really we're understanding what it means to be redeemed and and um, cha- be changed. We're being changed. Uh, scripture puts it this way: Let nothing be done through strife or vain glory. So seeking vain glory, and this causes so many church problems, so much church strife. The wrongs we perpetrate toward others is to boost us to the highest place. Bitterness and resentment are often because I was denied the highest place. Defensiveness often comes when my high place is challenged. Jealousy is the only sin that gives no pleasure. Someone else is getting the place I deserved. Someone says something good about someone else and I inwardly discredit it. Alright, but back to the storyline. So, the seats are all filled up. And Brother Hopeful is sitting in the highest seat. And now it's, it's whispered around that an honored guest is going to attend. The, the host then brings this true servant, brings in this true servant who is the guest of honor. And as Hopeful is sitting there at his highest seat, and the Bible doesn't say this, but I think he might be sitting at the bridal table. And that's not his place. He's not invited to sit there. Or maybe he's sitting at the parents' table. That's usually a table that's sitting right next to the bridal table. But he's just plain delighted. And Hopeful is delighted that the honored is being led right up towards him. This is really... Get to have the guest of honor sitting next to me. Whew. This was good, but this is getting even better. The host arrives and taps him on the shoulder and requests that he needs to move. Could you just about see the color draining from his face? Uh-uh. I'm sitting in the wrong spot. You're kidding. It's the most humiliating thing that Hopeful, as Hopeful realizes that he has taken the very seat that was reserved for the most honored guest. And, and he, he never realized what he had done. He didn't know it until he was told. That's, that's why I think I, you know, I do this. I do these things and sometimes I just need to be told. Those are humbling experiences. But you know, whatever we do to anyone is as though we've done it to Jesus. When we're taking the glory that God deserves, we're taking away, we're taking a position that is not ours when we take the glory. All should be done to the glory of God. It's taking the highest place when we've taken the place that is reserved for Jesus. And as much as you've done it unto me, well, whatever it is, public speaking, teaching, a reputation. Um, this, this, is a, this is an astonishing illustration of true repentance. I think is what Jesus is teaching. He's teaching an illustration of repentance. So Hopeful is tapped on the shoulder now and is told you need to move. You're sitting where you do not belong. And so, our friend Hopeful begins with shame. He needs to stand up. 
and in front of all the guests. He walks red-faced in front of the crowd to the lowest seat. And all eyes are watching as he takes the lowest seat by the door. You know, and that's how repentance is for us. Sometimes, you know, making a confession is not easy. It's difficult to make a confession. You're saying publicly that I was wrong. I shouldn't have done this. And sometimes it depends on who it needs to be made in front of. It's very, it's a very humbling experience, and he had to do it right in front of everyone. All eyes are watching, and repentance means to reverse my whatever. It means giving up my reputation. Brother, I was wrong. And when you say this, you take the lowest seat. And this is hard on pride. Humbling ourselves is repentance. And the lowest room is the place where Jesus went. He went to the cross. He went to that lowest place for you and me. So you can, but you can try to maintain your reputation and try to ignore the reality that you are sitting in the highest place. And this is called refusing to humble yourself. But remember we said that as surely as you humble yourself, you will be exalted. So now we have the scene at the lowest seat. And all eyes have seen this man in the lowest place through the humiliation of being replaced. And now he sits there with bowed head. And he, he can't look up because he's so humiliated because of the shame. People are feeling sorry for him. I, you know, I don't know what's going on in the audience, but as he sits there, he feels a tap on his shoulder. You know what? That's the same place where he was tapped before. In his conscience. That's the same place he was tapped before. And then he hears, friend, go up higher. Huh. Who said that? He jerks around. Who, who was that? What do you know? It's, it's the guest of honor. Tapping him on the shoulder and he says, What? Um, it's me. Oh, you know, he's, he's thinking to himself, no, no, no. Who, me? I've just taken your place. I've just taken your place. You're asking, what of me? Yes, I want you to come and I want you to sit with me. You mean in the highest place? Yeah. Come with me to the highest place. Surely as you humble yourself, you will be exalted. <coughs> For thus saith the high and lofty one that inhabiteth eternity, whose name is holy, I dwell in the high and holy place with him also that is of a contrite and humble spirit to revive the spirit of the humble and to revive the heart of the contrite ones. He has been revived, brought back, but not the same as he was before. Different now. Different now. 
I think this was the attitude of a publican that went to the temple to pray. God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Could not even lift his eyes toward heaven. This man went down to his house justified rather than the other. This man got exalted. Weeping, but rejoicing. Gloriously restored. Nearly every summer, and my growing up days, mom and dad would pack us up in the flivver and we'd head for Kansas without air conditioning and with an old little cassette player that we played tapes on. <laughs> mom remembers. And the breezes would blow as we traveled to Kansas to visit the relatives because that's where my roots are. Go to Kansas, and I'm ready to all over the place. Those were good trips. Those were good times. As we left Minnesota, we entered Iowa, then Nebraska. How soon are we going to be there? It took 11 to 12 hours driving time. I looked forward to crossing the line between Nebraska and Kansas. As we got into Kansas, those big, wide fields spread far and wide, and I saw a scene. I saw a scene that I never see up here in Minnesota. There was out there in those fields these iron rigs. And I was so fascinated with those iron rigs that were out there in the fields. And I've got a picture. I didn't take it. They were oil pumps. Those oil pumps were going up and down, up and down. And at times there was a few of them that weren't running. And so they were either up in the air or they were down. You know, I, as I think about Hopeful and his experience there at the wedding feast, now that he saw that he had sat in the wrong place and he went down in repentance. And then the host came and said, Come, you will be exalted. And welcomed him back to the highest seat. Something just tells me that that wasn't the end for Hopeful. <laughs> He's still on the journey of life. and He had more lessons to learn, just like you do just like I do. I just think maybe that life is like oil well pumps. We're just on a journey of going up and down and up and down and up and down. And at some point, the oil well gets, oil pump gets stopped and it's up. It's no longer pumping oil. Or if it gets stuck down in sorrow and repentance and or no, you always should be repentant. The illustration breaks down, you understand. <laughs> but if you're just always sorrowing, that's not right either. You're not pumping oil then. I think we need to be in a cadence of up and down and up and down. And I, that to me is a bit comforting because I just don't arrive. I just 
I get to the next hurdle, you know, and I realize I'm blowing it again. <laughs> Down I go. But when I see myself, I he says, "Okay, you just you're sorry. Okay, you come back now. Come with me. Back up. I go." So I don't know where I'm at now. <laughs> Somewhere in between. We'll see. We'll see. They ask me tomorrow. So he sat down. He sat down and called the twelve and said unto them, If any man desire to be first, the same should be last and servant of all. So I guess that's just a really good place to, to end and be. So let's just be. Let's just be servants, humble servants, and willing to learn whether we're down or whether we're up, exalted or whether we're back down.